Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Good tidings, dear listeners, and welcome to the July 2023 edition of State of Distress Debt Part of the FIC Focus podcast series where we focus on the U.S. stressed, distressed, and bankruptcy markets. I'm your host, Noel Hebert, and joining me to explore the state of play are litigation analyst Nagisa Baluku and senior distressed analyst Phil Brindell, each of Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, before diving in, a little public service announcement. So if you are new or regular listener, we like the regular listeners, and like what we're doing here with FIC Focus, please take a moment to follow, comment, or share is that helps us keep bringing in great guests and content, well, for you. Speaking of great guests and great content, in this episode, uh, we're very excited to bring you our conversation with John Pavelski, Managing Director and Co-Head of North America for the Carlisle Credit Opportunities Fund, uh, where we talk about many things, including what's next for distress, private credit, and what the intersection of those two may look like. Uh, But first, Phil, Markets feeling giddy again. Sentiment is effectively back to where we started the year. Consensus calling for soft landing. We're looking at the Fed maybe being one and done in terms of policy rate hikes again. Uh, Things are firmly focused on those stronger aspects of the economy, whether it's jobs or housing or whatever else. You know, high yield on my side, totally on fire uh, and and in a good way with spread at the tightest in over a year. And I think on the year date uh, through mid-July, we're up over 6% and June was a blockbuster as well. I know seasonally we were looking for maybe some softer stuff from distressed uh, in June and through the summer months, but uh, have we gotten it? Absolutely not. This is uh, what I I described to you, Noel. You you, you hit on a lot of the key points there. It's it just feels like a a huge melt up, Uh, you know, and uh, it's 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 uh, it's defying technicals. Uh, June was supposed to be a negative month. And, you know, thus far in July, I imagine distress supply is is stagnant, if not lower. and, you know, we saw that in the distress ratio, it plummeted to 7.9% from 9.1%. Healthcare is still leading uh, all sectors with a 23% distress ratio. Communications is at 16.5% and tech is at 11%. But, you know, it just seems that I, I think a lot of people are just, they, they can't stand not snapping up these high yields. Uh, we saw the FDs. DIC bailout, you know, that, that that was just reassuring that the government or Fed put is 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 always going to be there. And then, as you pointed out, lower inflation numbers and hopes of Fed on pause is, is you know, that's music to equities ears. And, you know, you never can forget that equity cushions growing is, uh, you know, makes high yield credit inv- investors uh, more comfortable. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of amazing how we're sort of swinging, uh, not, maybe not quite month to month, uh, but definitely maybe like in a two month cycle from extreme optimism to extreme pessimism and, and sort of the money flow is sort of cascading around it. But maybe uh, and this is both for you, uh, uh, Phil, and for Nagisa to the degree that either one of you want to come in in terms of we're seeing this in sort of high yield and distress. Is it influencing sort of the cadence of bankruptcies that we're seeing out there? 
it seems to me that the rate of bankruptcy is still, you know, ticking higher. So, you know, this seems to be happening in sort of like the solvent part of the market, maybe not so much in the the deeply distressed piece or no? Yeah. So I, I think from from the bankruptcy perspective, we're seeing companies. I, I mean, the, the point, the one I like to point out is Cineworld uh, is exiting and it's got a five year non-callable term loan that has an all in yield of 17 percent for first lien. <laughs> so that's supposed to be healthy exit financing. Is that a, is that a cash or pay or is that a paying kind? It's picking it's picked for the eight, first 18 months and only seven percent of that. Uh, and, you know, part of that 17 percent is also a 10 percent OID. So this okay. is what if this is what exit financing is looking like on first lien loan, um, you know, I mean, honestly, if someone wanted to, like, step into court and argue a little bit of feasibility, they might have had a they might have had a good argument there. But um, anyway, that so that's the exit financing that Cineworld's coming out with. So uh, to your point, bankruptcy is still, you know, it's it's always noted as uh, high interest rates are are pushing a lot of companies in these days. Uh, you know that's that's always first and foremost among the reasons in that first day declaration. Nagisa, I don't know. You. Yeah, no, it's interesting you mentioned Cineworld because I was actually also thinking along the same lines, but a little different. I think uh, what's happening in those cases, particular Cineworld, Regal slash National. So we've also seen, I think it's very rare you see that uh, Judge Jones that handled Nationals case um, sort of also brought up other names that could be potentially filing like AMC. Uh, there was a settlement that was reached between Regal and National that that uh, directly related to uh, to AMC uh, and to sort of see a judge sort of keep that in mind as they're assessing the settlement. I think it was interesting that here's another party, things have changed, but we have this other company that may also be filing and not necessarily take that, in, make that a factor in deciding, but it's sort of, you knew that it was background information that was in everyone's mind and maybe even subconsciously affected the ultimate result in that settlement. So interesting. Yes. Go ahead, so, so, so all of that. And, you know, I, I, I still the, the toughest three months of the year, are uh, August, September, no, uh, October for <laughs> distress. So I, I'm still holding on so to my seasonal uh, my, my se- seasonal trend uh, uh, that, that that's going to lead us lower. Uh, you know, th- look, I, you and I have both been in the markets for a long, long time. We've seen things go well beyond what you thought was possible. Mm-hmm. And so the, I, I, this, this again, doesn't necessarily surprise me. It's a, it could be a blow off. Um, and, and we'll be, you know, the credit will continue to deteriorate as we think fundamentals might. Um, but anyway, yeah, I, Oh, one last point. I, I just, you know, to the extent that, you know, we've only reached a little over 10% as a distress ratio for this whole cycle. So if this, you know, the, to the extent that things peak, uh, the lowest peak that we've seen in a distress cycle is 24%. So we're, we weren't even close, even at the peak. And that was last June. 
Yeah, and it's sort of, I mean, listen, I think what we've been seeing is relatively consistent with what, you know, we ourselves have been saying a little bit and what we've heard from a lot of our guests, which is that given where the Fed is, given where the economy is, et cetera, like don't get sort of lulled into these sort of rallies because this has a, a lot of signal posts or signposts that this could be sort of maybe more of an extended cycle, which means, you know, the distress isn't going to come all at once. It's not going to be your you know, great financial crisis or, or let alone your, your sort of pandemic era recessionary type of event. It's going to be something that might be a little bit more drawn out. And so maybe a lot more head fakes, uh, you know, a lot more events that sort of draw people in. And, and I think one of the things that I always sort of reference when I'm giving presentations or whatever else is that 99 to 2002 window where, you know, that four year period, you had starting yields on the high yield index that each year we're north of, of 10%, like 10 11.5%, 14%, 12.5%. 12 and yet your cumulative average annual return over that window of time, despite like 49, 50 points of total carry, was like 40 basis points. You know, so which kind of spoke to that sort of like, oh yeah, we, we can get it, we can get it, and then and and then sort of having that pulse on. But you brought up a point uh, which I think sets up as a really good segue into our conversation uh, with John at Carlisle, which is you talked about the floating rate piece uh, and sort of how that might sort of play in. And obviously, you know, floating rate uh, instrument exposure is a big factor in sort of the, the loan side and the private credit side. Uh, before we turn to that conversation, Phil, any thoughts in terms of whether we're getting it, I mean, I can't imagine we're getting a ton of relief out of that space, but it seems like markets are sort of moving on past it anyway. What's that? The uh, uh, the floating rate piece in terms of the impact, in terms of just profitability oh, and the ability for a company to sustain debt. It's 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 wreaking havoc. I mean, you know, that's 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 the part. Um, and this is going back to even when Revlon filed. You, the, it was. Uh, just you know, the obviously the more vulnerable fall faster, um, but you know the, the the rise in floating rates has just devastated uh, a lot of these companies' cash flows. And and what you see is when they don't have that, they can't invest in new businesses, new emerging technologies, and you know especially these technology and you know communications companies. Uh, they're also dealing with maybe. Uh, cord cutting and and so it, it's 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 it is kind of uh you can see how a perfect storm can be gathering yeah so with that uh perfect storm reference let's go ahead and turn now to our conversation with john pavelski so we're very pleased today to be joined by john pavelski managing director and co-head of north america for the carlisle credit opportunities fund uh, you know, it's a conversation that uh, Phil and I have been looking forward to here on State of Distress for quite some time, uh, given John's bona fides in the private equity and then private credit space. So, John, maybe we just turn to you here, if we could get you to maybe lay some groundwork and walk us through a little bit about your background, but also what that Carlisle platform looks like, whether it's mandate size, team and team structure, et cetera. I think that'd be useful in terms of setting up our conversation today. Fantastic. Well, Noel and Phil, uh, great to be with you guys today, and, and, and thanks for the opportunity to chat. Um, very quick background, you know, as you said, I'm co-head of North America for our credit opportunities business. I also look after uh, much of our special situation investing activity. Um, I'm on the private credit investment committee for our direct lending, opportunistic credit, and special situations business, and joined Carlisle about uh, three and a half years ago. 
Um, before Carlisle, I started my investing career at Blackstone, uh, doing pure private equity investing. Uh, went to business school at HBS, and have now been doing private credit and special sits investing for really over the last you know almost 20 years at firms such as Silverpoint uh, and most recently at Brookfield. Um, and, and then all to, your, to your question, at, at Carlisle, uh, we now manage about $150 billion of credit assets, and, and it's been a, a fast-growing business for us over the last several years. Um, on the liquid credit side, you know, we are one of, if not the largest, uh, CLO manager in the world. Um, on the private credit side, we have a direct lending business, an opportunistic credit, and a special situation focus. We have a real asset credit business focused on aviation finance, infrastructure, uh, and real estate credit. And then we have a series of platform initiatives across those segments to try to deliver the firm uh, for our investors. I mean, there's a lot of pieces in there. So I guess maybe like uh, in terms of walk us through, in terms of what's that team size look like? It sounds like at least a few hundred people somewhere. And I'm assuming global given the size of the fund. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's absolutely a global business. And, and you know, where I spend most of uh, my time is, as I said, on the opportunistic credit side. And so on the opportunistic credit business, we have 33 people um, in New York and London. Uh, and really, we, we, we run an integrated platform, both with the broader credit business and the liquid credit side. We think there's a lot of knowledge to be gained, uh, just given our scale in the, in, the, in the liquid credit and the CLO business. Um, and we also look to leverage, you know, the IP and the scale of the broader private equity business as well. We think one of the advantages, you know, for our investors is, you know, on the sourcing side, given the scale of Carlisle with almost $400 billion of assets, there's a lot of deals um, that come through the machine. Um, and then, of course, on the underwriting side and the execution side, leveraging that IP, the industry expertise, the, the operating partners that we have throughout the firm, uh, we think are, you know, is a competitive advantage for us on the credit side. Yeah, absolutely. So let's maybe dig into some of the more uh, maybe macro particulars in the state of the play as you sort of see it today. I think much has been made of the the so-called quote unquote golden age of private credit. Feels like we've been reading a version of that headline for probably the better part of a year or so. Uh, so I guess maybe I, I want to kind of take a slightly different tack towards that because I because it has been sort of uh, oversaturated. But how do you think of sort of golden age uh, uh, for that kind of asset class versus when does it become too much? When does AUM risk sort of outstripping whatever the opportunity set you see there is, uh, or maybe even altering sort of the underlying economics that have sort of underpinned a lot of that growth? Yeah, of course. And so, yes, the off-reported golden age of private credit, which which we fully agree with, by the way. I think just to your point, Noel, it's been it's been very well covered in the press. Press. And so, very briefly on that, and then I think we can talk to another you know idea, but. The private credit, you know, as the private credit um, industry has evolved, it's become a more credible solution for regular way borrowers in scale. And to your point, that's been very well documented and reported on. Um, private credit is now a $1.2 trillion industry, and, and it comprises roughly 26% of a $4.8 trillion leverage finance market in both the U.S. and Europe. And so the growth has been significant. That 26% was 13% in 2010. Um, but we think there is a, a, a long uh, way to go on the growth. And so we don't think it's oversaturated in any way. Um, we do think there are going to be changes uh, both in, in um, the composition of the, the players and on the scale of the opportunities. And maybe an additional point, what hasn't been as reported and, and one of the larger trends that we're seeing and spending a fair amount of time on 
is the intersection of private credit and, and stressed investing. Uh, given how the credit cycle is setting up, we see this as different than 2008. We see that it's different than the period post-COVID. And we think that private credit or hybrid capital solutions can actually provide invest investors the best way to access some of the stress that we're seeing in the market today. Um, you know, these are deals that provide equity-like returns with downside protection, and it's a it's a compelling strategy on both an absolute and a relative ba basis versus other uh, private market asset classes. And if you take the current environment, um, elevated interest rates, you know, compromised capital markets activity, private credit is is a very relevant and often the only solutions for companies who need structured capital or something outside of the bounds of the regular capital markets. And as first lien direct loans are now yielding 11 to 12%, um, if you're providing something bespoke or something junior or something hybrid, you no longer need to stretch for returns or invest in lower quality businesses. And so we think that's one of the most compelling you know, evolutions of the segment is that we can generate those mid-teens to high-teens you know, returns in businesses of integrity and a higher quality than we've seen in a long time. And so um, let me pause there for a minute, Noel, but I think you know, we can move into how we see this distress cycle or this credit cycle as unique and how it sets up very well for this product. Well, I mean, the good thing is, is that you're doing my job for me. Um, so that was actually my next question. So I'm just going to actually put myself on mute and maybe you can interview yourself. I, I think that might, <laughs> might be as uh, uh, yield as many fruit. But uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the things and you kind of reference seeing it as a different kind of cycle. And I think that's something we've heard in a number of places. But I, I think all the levers that people sort of cite are a little bit different, whether it's, you know, the different role of the Fed, maybe it's the the globalized economy or whatever it happens to be. So I guess to your point, like what is your sense and, and view of, of this credit cycle. Obviously, it's not going to be a, a pandemic era cycle because that was not even a real cycle. But is this like, is this something that we have an example of, or is, do you think this is going to be something entirely new? So cycles always rhyme, um, but we think this one will be unique um, and distinct for two primary reasons. And the first is because of the reversal of really seismic central bank policies over the last 15 years. The duration, the magnitude of this intervention was historic. And we think the reversal, you know, at the risk of being dramatic, is creating a perfect storm of factors which sets up very well for this intersection of private credit and stressed investing. And so, so that's the first point, which again, we can elaborate on in a minute. The second is we think the definition of stressed and distressed in this cycle will be broader. Historically, people have thought about distressed investing as cyclical businesses in the need of an operational fix. Because of how this cycle is setting up, we are seeing a broader range of opportunity in, quote, good companies with bad balance sheets, or maybe more appropriately, good companies that never anticipated 5% base rates for an extended period of time. And that is a broader and a significant opportunity set um, that we think will persist. And it's not an opportunity set that is solely predicated on the default rate either. These can be offensive transactions where a business is looking to execute an M&A strategy where a PE firm paid a high price and needs to, 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 to grow into its multiple, or they can be defensive transactions to fix a liability issue in a more traditional stressed investing world. But in either case, 
private credit, hybrid capital, you know, can really be a relevant solution. And if you think back, you know, to 2008 and you think back to COVID, Noel, as you referenced, those periods were defined by sharp contractions in economic activity that were met with a massive central bank response, right? Lower rates and bond buying, and this restarted the economy and kind of restarted the capital markets engine. In, in many ways, the inverse is happening today. Um, we are seeing some slowing or moderation of economic growth. We are seeing far tighter credit conditions because of higher rates. Um, it's been described, and we agree with it, as a slow motion credit cycle. And, and we think we're in the early innings of this opportunity set. If you believe the Fed dot plot, and you think the median expectation for Fed, Fed funds is 5.6% by the end of 2023, this will continue to pressure many borrowers that we see. And even if we don't go into a recession, right, which is, is becoming the consensus view, and, and we think that's debatable, um, we, we don't necessarily, we think there can be increased stress with underlying corporates outside of a recession. And we think it likely to have a continued period of elevated interest rates and, and illiquidity in the capital markets, which really is a great setup for this opportunity set. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned in terms of consensus sort of evolving because somebody was talking to me this uh, this morning about it. And I'm like, I think it's this is the, definitely the second and maybe the third time that we've made that same trade this year, right? Because I was coming into the year, it was the soft landing. There's no recession, spreads rallied. Uh, you know, and there really is sort of a bifurcation between the markets. But you hit on something there that I want to kind of explore a little bit because, and, and you also referenced it in terms of talking about the 1.2 trillion of private credit relative to 4.8 trillion. Uh, in terms of leverage finance, one thing that we've really seen is is sort of this changed architecture within the in the credit landscape of the last, you know, since you Phil and I have been doing this over the last 20 plus years, right? It, where you went from sort of a corporate fixed rate only market to something that's much more floating rate centric nowadays between both loans and private. So as you see the cycle playing out, and you reference the floating rate piece, do you think it? it there's a contagion effect outside of or spreading away from sort of the floating rate stuff, or do you think it's more isolated in the loan space or the loan and private credit space? So we think the opportunity set um, becomes apparent in, in a range of circumstances. And, and we see it to your point with floating rate borrowers who interest cost has basically doubled over the last 18 months. Um, we also see it in many borrowers whose top line is slowing and maybe they're experiencing margin erosion. But let, let me step back for a minute, Noel, if we could, because let's frame the discussion in two parts. The first is how we got here, because we think the narrative of the last 15 years is very significant in terms of the magnitude of the opportunity set that we see. And then to your question, let's get into where are we today and what are we seeing every day in the markets? And so with how we got here, I'll start with three numbers. Four, nine, and 18. And if you go back to 2009, post-financial crisis, the combined balance sheets of the Fed and the ECB were $4 trillion. That's the four. Then, then of course, you recall we had QE1, we had QE2, Ben Bernanke in the seminal 2010 speech on the wealth effect, and then QE3. And if you fast forward to 2020, pre-COVID, that $4 trillion increased to $9 trillion. So plus $5 trillion over 11 years. In the two years that followed COVID, the $9 trillion increased to $18 trillion. So it was an additional $9 trillion of balance sheet of just those two central banks. And so the markets that we invest in every day, stocks, bonds, 
government securities, private credit, crypto, whatever it may be, they've all been buoyed by this liquidity. And and that's the factor that's now changing so dramatically. There's a great quote um, from one of my favorite authors, David Foster Wallace. It said, a fish in water forgets that that it's in water. And that's where these markets have been. And we have a generation of investors who only know this environment because of how long it's persisted. And so now we're in the midst of one of the most aggressive Fed tightening cycles in history. And, and the full effects, you know, are still lagging. So base rates are up by 500 basis points. Gravity, at least in the form of interest rates, ha- have returned to earth. Um, and, and we think that the implications are significant. And we also think the implications are difficult to predict. Um, lags in monetary policy have always existed, and they are always important. Given the magnitude and the duration of the accommodation we just spoke about, we think it's one, more significant, and two, less predictable than it's been in prior cycles. The world, in many ways, has become accustomed to free money, and weaning the system off of it will come with a, a series of un, 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 you know, unexpected challenges. And the mini banking crisis that we saw earlier this year, we think, is one of them where we had um, you know, basically mismatches of assets and liabilities outside of a default cycle, which was a highly unusual event. And so the, the context is significant. And just like in prior cycles, and we saw this in 08, um, when money is free, investors act accordingly. And, and over the last several years, PE firms paid very high prices for assets with significant leverage, to your point, much of which was floating rate. Now it's doubling costs and the top lines are slowing. And we see this in, as, as, as really fertile ground for capital solutions. And so at, at the risk of being dramatic, we call this the pipeline of inevitability. For, so for, for <laughs> I like that. Yeah. So average LBO transactions during that period was $150 billion. And in 2021, it was $229 billion. Elevated valuations, 11 to 12 times. Leverage at six times. Primarily financed with floating rate debt. And and, and much of the EBITDA was, was adjusted. And so there is a set of companies out there. And many of these are reasonable businesses. And many of these are actually good businesses. Because investors paid up for growth in software and healthcare with capital structures that are either unsustainable or can't or can't earn the requisite equity return. And they're going to need to extend the duration of the option of their capital structure. And that's what we think is so compelling because we see this creeping stress coming into many borrowers. And we also see a set of borrowers that have to access an opportunistic transaction. And that presents a higher quality opportunity set for us. And so um, let me pause there because that's a little bit of the history and then we can talk into what we're seeing today. But but let me um, let me take a break. Yeah, I, I do definitely want to sort of create space for Phil to come in here. But I think uh, I do want to just throw two philosophicals at you. The first one is, do we actually have a different Fed? Right? And this is a conversation and a debate that I have with people quite frequently in terms of Obviously, this is a specific moment in time, but it has the DNA of the Fed really changed through this cycle or or as soon as sort of, you know, there's a, a boogeyman at the door that they that they flip the script back. I, I think it's I think it's a very fair question. Um, I think as we process the world and the opportunity set, the magnitude of as what of, of what has happened already. The 500 basis points that we've seen, and if you believe the, the 560 basis points through the end of this year, we think that that is going to have 
you know, more of a significant impact than any incremental increase or decrease from here. We don't think the Fed is going to cut by 200 basis points or more in the near future. That has only been done in the context of a recession. And we don't think we're close to one because we think the underlying strength of the labor market puts the Fed in a, in, in a bit of a difficult place right now if they're going to continue to be data dependent. And so whether there's a, a, a this is a different Fed or not is a difficult question to answer. We do think that rates will be elevated here for the foreseeable future for the next one to two years, possibly longer. And we think that creates the fertile ground that we spoke about. And then the second question I just have, given the context of all this, how do you think about dry powder relative to the AUM? Do you, do you say like, listen, we need more than we normally carry, less than we normally carry? It sounds like uh, you see a lot of opportunities ahead for which you want to have flexibility. Um, so our pipeline is bigger than it's ever been on the opportunity side. And so I believe we can responsibly invest multiples of the capital that we have. And, you know, we and many others are, are, are focused on that idea. And I think investors understand. Um, when you talk about dry powder, it's interesting because you can talk about it in different channels. The private equity industry has $2.5 trillion of dry powder. So we think the channel of regular way financings for private equity buyouts, right? Not, not special situations, not capital solutions, junior capital, but first lien loans. We think that will continue to be a compelling opportunity set because um, private equity firms over time have generally shown that they're going to invest the capital that they've raised. And, and we believe that to be the case. If you move beyond that and you look at the maturity wall and you look at some of the stress that we're seeing both idiosyncratically and, and more broadly in certain industries, that that's where we really get excited and we think the the broader opportunity set will come in some of these um hybrid capital solutions in the intersection john i think i'm going to jump in here uh you know one of the things that besides the obvious high floating rates are uh putting stress on pretty much every corporate borrower these days uh i guess i'm what other like catalysts in the world are you know Kind of triggering distress. Uh, you know, we know that the regional banks have, you know, definitely under a lot of stress, and that's strictly from, you know, mismatched books. Um, you know, we've had the war, and you know, maybe that's put a, a thaw into foreign direct investment and how that might affect different companies. And you you might be seeing some companies starved of capital, and you know, maybe cord cutting or you know, d different sectors that m might really be undergoing. I ha you know, maybe if you can just hit on some things that are kind of at the front of your mind right now. Of course. And so let's let's talk about what we think is going to drive the supply of opportunity. That's the first. Let's talk about what we think is happening on um, the you know the demand side for capital and capital formation. And then Phil, to your point, there's obviously specific things happening on an industry um, segments as well that will drive uh, stress separate from any you know, broader considerations. And so um, overall, uh, credit um, conditions are weakening and downgrades are outpacing upgrades by 2.8 times. Um, leverage levels have increased, particularly for leverage loan issuers. And interestingly, if you look at the underlying credit quality today, remember we're 15 years into 
th this up cycle, if you will, which has now just ended, 32% of US loans are rated B3 or lower. That was 12% in 2014 and 6% in 2008 before the financial crisis. And so we think that the conditions that led us here are creating you know, that fodder, if you will, for the prospective opportunity set. And so generally we think that credit quality, while the default rate has stayed low, is set up to see pockets of individual stress on borrowers. So, so that's the first point. The second point is the CLO machine, um, which is largely uh, representative of the new issue leverage loan market, 40 to 50% of CLOs are expected to exit their reinvestment period by 2024. So we think the supply of regular way capital for refinancings will be lower than it has been. Now look, the CLO industry has, has an unbelievable um, history of recreating itself and creating capacity, but we don't think it will be as significant of a capital provider as it has been historically. And then lastly, and it's been well reported on, we, we do see a maturity wall approaching in 2024 and beyond. And we are having many conversations with public companies and private companies and middle market companies that are beginning to grapple with that. And, and Noel, I think this is where you started. Coming into the year, the, the view was that rates were going to drop and higher quality borrowers said, we're just going to wait to issue. We, we think that the credit conditions are going to become more benign. And we think duration is our friend as it has always been. And we don't want to issue in a high interest rate environment. That has changed. And that's actually changed over the last couple of months. And, and we've seen not an entire capitalization, but at least an acknowledgement that rates may stay elevated for a period of time. And we think there's more concern on the issuer side that it's going to be harder to refinance their capital structures, which is something most companies haven't worried about for, for a long period of time. And so that's the general answer, Phil, to your question. Now, there's another component of this too, is that there's always an arc to a distress cycle. And, and this one is no different than prior cycles. And so the first wave of companies that you see are the traditional distressed borrowers. It's companies with existential questions. It's companies that have been all, on all of our watch lists for the last three years. They probably should have restructured many, year ago, many years ago. And we think there will continue to be a flow of weak businesses that probably should have restructured two or three years ago. That wave, many of those companies have, have happened and have restructured, and we think that will likely persist. The second wave, which is new in this cycle, is earlier stage and you know, quasi-disruptive business models, many of which were cash flow negative and got funded you know, in the era of free money. And many of those, some of which are high profile names, the, the Twitters, the Pelotons, the Carvanas, and, and many smaller businesses, that's a wave that we're seeing as well. Now, those businesses are tricky to underwrite, but again, it's just it, it's indicative of the addressable market and how this is playing through. And then the last wave, which we're just starting to see now, are these good companies' bad balance sheets, right? And maybe a sponsor paid too high of a price for a business. It's a company that was executing an M&A strategy. Um, we are seeing some margin erosion and slowing top line in borrowers. And the longer this macro context persists, the more attractive that third opportunity set becomes. And, and that's really what um, 
we're, we're keen on pursuing. Right. And in terms of uh, like cord cutting, is that, is, that, is that something that, you know, I know that's affected a lot of content companies and that sort of thing. Is that something that, you know, I, I guess I'm pointing that out as the sort of we know that's creating a lot of distress and and I'm just kind of curious, are there other theme, themes like that that might be sticking out to you right now? Sure. Um, so cord cutting is absolutely a theme that we're seeing. And I'll be honest, we're not spending that much time around it because we think the channels of distribution of content are going through a seismic change. And we think it's actually difficult to predict where it shakes out and what the underlying profitability of those business models. I, ironically, and I'll come back to your question in a minute, we have been spending a, a significant amount of time on content. We think that the ownership of the IP of the underlying content, and whether it's movies or TV shows or sports teams or what you will, irrespective of the distribution channel, we think that content is valuable and will, will, will remain valuable. But the cord cutting is absolutely um, an area of stress. We are also seeing stress around the consumer. You know, this is still a consumer oriented economy and um, retailers are having trouble. Uh, we think many businesses with, with fixed cost structures that are unable to pass through, you know, the, the, the next price increase, if you will, are seeing some strains. Um, and it's interesting, we, ironically, we don't spend as much time around those businesses, on the declining cord cutting, on the cinema businesses, on companies that are going through existential questions, A, because it's difficult to predict the tail in a declining business, and B, because, back to the earlier comments, we just think there's a higher quality opportunity set that we can access and generate those high teens, you know, low 20s type returns. Great. Okay, so let's go back to uh, you know the world of private credit. I think we've been talking pretty generally about themes and uh, and sectors. Um, with specifically with private credit, we you generally have smaller companies, and you know you've you've been you've sat on boards, you've been you know you, you started at Blackstone, so you know the sponsor mentality, um, and then you've been in distressed in special situations. So obviously from the debt perspective, you understand that as well. Um, with these smaller capital structures, can you talk about maybe some of the bigger differences and uh, between when you have a large enterprise where cash flow and paying for professionals and you know the groups form and the multi-layers of work in workouts versus when you have these smaller situations, what are workouts like? Because Quite honestly, uh, it's been a while since I was doing it, so I'm sure things have changed. And uh, you know, we we don't get to see that. Uh, it's 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 often hidden from view. And you know, maybe if you could just sort of describe what the private credit workout looks like. Absolutely, and and, and let me just you know start with a a little bit of a clarifying question: Is that um, the average EBITDA in in our portfolio on the opportunistic credit side is over three hundred million dollars? Okay. Um, the median EBITDA is well over 100 million. So to your point, um, we deliberately focus on bigger borrowers. Okay. You know, we think we're downside protection. And so um, we, we, we agree with you that restructurings for smaller borrowers are far trickier than bigger borrowers, which is why we have a, a strong preference for bigger companies. Now, that said, 
um, let's talk about restructurings in the private credit industry because I think it's an interesting topic. The, the private credit industry, it grew up in an environment with very benign credit conditions, right? Low interest rates, high growth, elevated valuations, right? There was significant liquidity and it's been a really low default rate environment for, for many years. And so we haven't seen, uh, we, or I should say, we're just starting to see now how private credit workouts will behave. Um, ironically, over the last 10 or 15 years, he or she who has taken the most risk was, was often disproportionately rewarded in this sector. And that risk took many forms, but it was often smaller borrowers or subordinated capital investments or unproven business models. And so we fully expect and we're starting to see a divergence of performance around managers, right? Where there are those that made investments with more downside protections and less downside protections. And um, it's also been fairly well reported on that many private credit managers are looking to increase their workout capabilities, right? It's been a real time since we've, it's been a long time since we've seen a real cycle. And um, it's been a long time since we've had folks focused on the distressed and workout capabilities and reps matter in that business. And it's really a, a business of experience. And so what's unique about the private credit industry, whether it's big borrowers or smaller borrowers, is often um, the composition of the, the investments are made through a club, right? And so it's two, three, four, five different private credit investors where there are only several funds involved. So as opposed to the broadly syndicated market where you can have dozens or you know, sometimes hundreds of individual CLO managers with a more diverse portfolio, the, the position sizes in the private credit industry are more concentrated with respect to our borrowers. And so that can work well for a restructuring because there are fewer parties to deal with. However, and we've seen this on certain instances, if there's not alignment among the parties, it can actually be a more difficult setup given the concentrated hold positions and the effective blocking rights that some lenders have over others. And so we think that's going to be a theme of how these workouts um, you know, get executed because there needs to be a shared perspective going forward among the individual direct lenders. And you know, just giving a covenant waiver to a sponsor, we think they're going to get more complicated than that. Yeah, that's fascinating. Can you also talk about, um, we know that the, the, the price basically is static for quite a long time in, in private credit models. And, and so, you know, not necessarily, you know, your portfolio, but like uh, other, you know, funds might be holding something static. And then, uh, you know, maybe it's and maybe they're not monitoring it on a daily, daily basis. And then all of a sudden they're they're getting uh, a meeting that didn't they weren't expecting uh, from the company and they're ready to hand over the keys. <laughs> you know, those sort of uh, discussions. Can you talk about like that dynamic? Are, are, are lenders going to be caught off guard? I mean, is there going to be a lot of surprises here? Uh, we, we think there are going to be surprises. Um, and to the earlier conversation, we think there will be more surprises in smaller borrowers with less differentiated business models, lower market shares, less durable cash flows. Uh, and, and we are starting to see that generally in the world and the opportunity set that we see, right? As I kind of describe the arc of 
you know, the, 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 the kind of weaker businesses and then the earlier stage businesses. And now we're getting into that tier three. Part of that first tier was a series of relatively undifferentiated middle market companies um, that are trying to raise rescue financings or junior capital deals that really don't make any sense because these businesses aren't earning their cost of capital and more debt at a high teens percent interest rate. It's just a prelude to a restructuring. And so, um, you know, hope is never a strategy. And whether it's a financial sponsor that's trying to extend the duration of investment or a private credit manager that doesn't want to take the keys because they don't have the experience to do so when it's not in their you know, business model, we expect more of that to happen. And that's really where we're going to see the shakeout of the industry because you're starting to see it in the leveraged loan market already. There was an article, and I'm sure you guys have seen it, that recovery rates on syndicated bank debts post defaults was in the 20s earlier this year. And the underlying credit documentation, whether it's the syndicated market or certain sectors of the private credit market, has been so poor, we think the severities of some of these underlying defaults given how intense the competition was for many of these financings are going to be quite poor. And that's going to lead to some of the, the differentiation I spoke about earlier among managers. John, one of the things that I, I, I know when people, when an LBO was done, there'd be this big term loan with floating rate debt. And a lot of times the sponsors would say, hey, it's an attractive time to swap that floating into fixed. Uh, how is that still being done on a wide scale and like or was it done and and now probably people are less willing to they don't necessarily want to swap into fixed but you know is that something that was done during the pandemic when rates were so uh low or and you know also to to what length were people able to swap that out I, you know I'm I'm curious as to you know and I, I guess that's where a CFO kind of like makes his uh, stripes or not. So, so I'm going to date myself here for a minute, because if you go back to the private, private credit industry in 2005 and 2006, um, we were forced to swap everything. And we, as credit managers, actually forced CFOs to swap their interest rate risk because we didn't want to get um, caught off guard by, by something that happened. It was uncertain. I don't have the specific stats as to what has been fixed and what hasn't been. What I can say based on conversations we have with bankers and restructuring advisors and financial sponsors is that a minority of deals were actually fixed and swapped out during the pandemic when rates were very low. There are certain borrowers and financial sponsors, you know, in, in tip of the cap to them that, that did do it and are far better positioned now. Most haven't, and, and even the ones that did, those interest rate hedges are going to roll off at some point and they're going to be far more expensive, you know, when, when they get rehedged. And so um, that's going to drive a lot of this opportunity set. Again, it's, it's just the significance with which and the rapidity with which these rates have increased um, are going to drive a lot of strain among uh, middle market and upper middle market borrowers. No, that's great. I, I really appreciate these answers. Um, let's talk about when a company actually needs capital um, and rescue financing opportunities. What I've been seeing a lot lately 
is uh, these pre-dips, dips. <laughs> so basically, uh, a company doesn't want to necessarily file, but it needs liquidity. So uh, there's like a priming uh, piece of paper. Um, we saw that with Diebold Nixdorf. And what impressed me so much about that piece of paper was that it was put in, I guess, at the end of December, and then the company filed, and it's it actually had its first lien claims and Makol, uh paid on the very first day uh, off of interim dip approval. And I'm just kind of I'm, I'm talking generally now. Um, are the are these opportunities? Um, do you see that in the private credit world as well? That or or is it? You know, I, I guess, how do you think about it? Because, uh, you know, bankruptcy is expensive, obviously, and if you can avoid it, great. But a lot of times it, it almost seems like they're setting up for uh, another bite at the apple, some of these rescue financings. And maybe how, how do you think about it? Is that is that do you do you view that as a bunch of half measures that, that that's not your preference in, in terms of when you uh, are trying to solve some of these problems? Yeah, so 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 this is a really interesting question, Phil, and and, and th there's a range of answers to it. So, but let me start with our strategy and our focus, and then I can broaden from there. So, we are our strategy is not to um, pretend to be a lender and then to you know try to lay in the weeds and take over a company, right? The distress for control business is um, it's a difficult business. It's time intensive, and 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 it's not our core strategy. We're far more interested in providing capital solutions to good, good borrowers that we think have a reason to exist and will be successful. And so th the idea of private credit as a white knight is compelling to us, right? And the flexibility of the capital that we can provide, we think is relevant in different situations. And so to your, to, to your point, th there's a range of relevance as to how the deals can set up. And so if you talk about a priming deal, we have seen a range of priming deals and priming deals are often most relevant for larger borrowers with syndicated capital structures. And, and that's the case because the integrity of the existing documents are so poor that you can do an exchange, you can do an up tier, you can find loopholes either at the corporate you know, level or at an individual subsidiary level with a drop down to prime existing creditors because the syndicated market uh, documentation was was really, really weak over the last decade. Um, those deals are harder to do in the private credit space because the integrity of the underlying documents there are often higher. That said, um, deals that we're seeing are you know, full capital structure takeouts where you can take out a you know an existing borrower and negotiate for equity upside in the form of warrants. Um, we're seeing an increased incidence of preferred equity transactions, almost in the form of rescue financings. And these are for really good companies, right? Where you can get conviction of being junior, but it goes back to this idea I said earlier of these offensive and defensive transactions where you can show up with a significant preferred equity investment, really delever the business, give the company incremental cash to go play offense. That's a compelling idea to boards and management teams and good companies, um, and, and we've executed several of those transactions, uh, you know, in, in the in the post-COVID period and recently. But the integrity and the scale of those businesses, there's a high bar given your junior in the capital structure. Okay, so that's heading into a bankruptcy or a diff, you know, a, a, 
a dip, maybe a dip refinancing. But how about exit financing now? It, you know, and you know, probably haven't seen it in your portfolio yet. But uh, you know, to the extent that you have a distressed name that goes, you know, exits bankruptcy now. Um, what are you thinking about debt capacity in this high rate environment? And, you know, what's what's the ideal capital structure? And, you know, think about what it might have been 10 years ago. Yeah, no, look, it's 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 an important point because folks forget that there are two mar- there are two primary concepts in a bankruptcy. Right. One is the ultimate valuation. And two is is the debt capacity that the business can service post bankruptcy. And um, debt capacities are far lower. And, and so when before you get involved in a situation um, it's a really important consideration as the quantum of debt you're going to put on the company and where do you invest in the capital structure? Because if you're a junior capital investor and a business goes into a restructuring and the debt, the, the debt capacity is materially lower than it has been, and it has to be lower than it was 10 years ago because interest costs have doubled, um, you really run the risk. Of, 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 a, of, of, a, of a significant loss of capital, um, because unless you're willing to write a check and to take out the senior lender, uh, you're really at the whim of the process and the system. And so um, that's a big idea where we really exercise a fair amount of, judiciousness is a word that we use a lot around the halls. And, and we think that if you're going to get involved with a situation where there is the possibility of a restructuring, um, our strong preference is to be in that senior secured position so you you can really be uh, you have more control over the process. Yeah, I've some I've seen some interesting uh, I think it was a via um, these interesting capital exit capital structures where they just put in first lien debt and then or, you know, maybe a second lien debt behind an uh, accounts receivable facility or, you know, working capital facility. Uh, but then they'll. Uh, attach the equity to it as well. And just because, and those are, those are certainly compelling, uh, capital structures because you have the downside protection as well as the upside. Um, let's jump to, uh, valuable market lessons. You know, this is, I think, informative for our audience because, you know, you, you have such a deep experience investing and, you know, maybe you can talk to us. You know, I found, I learned more from, my losing experiences than I have from my winners. But, uh, you know, maybe if you can point to one of each or whatever you prefer, um, you know, maybe some of your key fundamental tenets when it comes to investing. Yeah. And I don't think Phil imply is implying that you've had losers. <laughs> uh, I, I think. Uh... Yeah. I mean, so so it's interesting because my, my career, it's always focused on the gray area. Right, and, and whether that's the intersection of private credit and stressed investing, or private credit and private equity, um, I, I've tend to gravitate toward the complex, and you know that's that's what I've found more interesting. And so um, I've been fortunate enough to be involved in um, some of the larger you know restructurings over the last 20 years, like Delphi Automotive. We were the stocking horse on Refco, and, and have seen how true restructurings can play out. In, in very uncertain markets. And then more recently, as, as we've referenced through the call, you know, a series of hybrid capital investments post-COVID to take advantage of those you know, capital solutions in both offensive and defensive um, situations. And so the, the first lesson I'll offer is um, 
the best restructurings often happen with good businesses or businesses that have a reason to exist. And, and as I process new investment opportunities, uh, the bar for the integrity of the business has increased. And, and we talked a little bit about this earlier, where some of this is the investment environment we're in. Some of this is case studies that I've been involved with or have just observed in the markets where you can have the best structure in the world and whether it's liens or protections or being senior in the capital structure and, and all of those things matter. I don't want to minimize those at all, right? We've, 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 we've protected a significant amount of capital by being senior secured in a capital structure. But if the business is losing a significant amount of money and if liquidity becomes a problem, you're in a difficult position and, and that that's even exacerbated if you're a junior creditor. And so, the lesson would be understanding how businesses really behave in a downside scenario. What's the variable nation of the cost structure? What's the fixed nature of the cost structure? How do the unit economics, um, you know, kind of behave in a range of scenarios? That's critical to stressed investing. And, and in many ways, that's the intersection of private equity and private credit, right? That's the same work, you know, that a private equity firm does where you, you distill an income station, income statement and a business model down to its component parts to really understand the assumptions that are embedded with it and how it's going to behave in a range of scenarios. Where I have seen firms and individuals lose the most amount of money um, is around assumptions-based investing. And I think to, to distill those underlying business models to drive clarity um, is, is a really important idea. So, so that's, that's point one. If I before you jump to point two, maybe I'd, I'd like to jump in on that because one of the things that sort of struck me, certainly post pandemic, but but just in this general world, and now we're talking about AI and all these other things. I mean, it seems like the pace of change that's impacting a lot of businesses. At least it feels like it's quickening. Maybe it's just because I'm older, right? Um, but it feels like it's quickening. So does that change sort of how you undertake that process of trying to stress test a company? Because it seems like, you know, 20% of the business goes away overnight, maybe only 10% of it comes back. Like, it seems like very few things are moving back up to the high watermark. So, so I, I, think, I think that's a really important point. And so I and we have a preference for quote unquote low beta business models, right? Where um, if, if, again, if you're in that step two of the arc of distress where you have disruptive businesses that are growing very quickly and they're disintermediating a broader market, but they're not yet proven, we have a hard time with those, no to your point, because the change is happening more quickly and we spend a lot of time around underlying market structure and barriers to entry. Um, we, we, and and, and we, that's where we go back to the scale, we go back to the market position, we go back to the disintermediation risk, and that, that, that drives a lot of our decision-making process because we are now seeing a range of quote unquote rescue financings, which we're passing on all of them, of private credit firms that have, have invested in newer growth oriented businesses that weren't yet proven. And we think the recoveries are going to be very low. And so as, as you as you build a portfolio, as, as you build a business, um, it sounds so simple, but making sure you have the downside protection inherent in every investment that you do that's where I think a lot of the differentiation will happen. And now some of that will be a function of what are the opportunities that you see? What are the scale of the businesses as you do? But when we talk about the average EBITDA in our portfolio of over $300 million, 
much of it is it to exactly that point is we just think that the beta and the uncertainty embedded in those business models are less. So point one, absolutely agreed, incredibly important. Point two, um, talent matters. And I've seen management teams, I've seen different management teams with the same set of facts and the same business um, drive dramatically different outcomes. And so as, as we process the new investments that we're making, and as we process how to optimize investments that we have, a lot of my time now is focused on talent management and how do we do it and how do we create a business that is unique and how do we create a leadership team that's cohesive and, and are driving the business forward and making differentiated decisions. We're not operators. I'm not an operator, right? That's not a skill set that I have. And so we are so reliant on the management teams that we partner with. And again, I've always been surprised of how different those outcomes can be. And so that would be that would be the second point um, is just the importance of management in, in driving both downside protection and, and, and also um, upside. Um, and then maybe the last one is credit investors are skeptical by nature. And I'm no <laughs> So we're all what? What, what are you talking about, John? Yeah, we're all built with a similar DNA. And I have found over time that credit investors can often undervalue equity upside. And whether that's in a post-reorg equity, whether that's coming out of a cycle. And so finding opportunities to create equity, either in the form of warrants or in the form of upside sharing or in the form of process, prop of um, uh, profit participations is an interesting way to outperform in the market, assuming you can keep the downside protection embedded with the investment. And those are often the deals that we're drawn to, or at least I'm drawn to now, is where you have the downside protection, maybe you have something senior in the capital structure, but you have a way to outperform, whether it's a make haul, whether it's a profit participation or something else. And, and again, we're just given the attractiveness of the opportunities that we're seeing a lot of those opportunities as well. Yeah, I think working against our biases is obviously, I mean, that's certainly something I kind of, every day I try to reset my clock because you, you kind of walk in with a certain disposition. Uh, I want to stay mindful of time here, but I did have one more uh, a question although I'm still stuck on the talent matters piece because I just think about Phil and I, and I'm still debating in terms of which way that pendulum swings. But uh, I did want to come back to the loss severity uh, because I, I think it's a really important point that is maybe underappreciated in the marketplace, particularly when we see spreads compressing and that sort of thing. Do you think that sort of experience and as people sort of encounter more of this deep loss severity in even more uh, secured parts of the capital structure, that that ultimately changes sort of the risk pricing uh, across the marketplace? Or do you think it's just a function of there's just so much money you'd mentioned? Uh, I got to remember my count bond count uh, four nine eighteen, right? That there's just so much money out there that, you know, it's, you know, credit quality be darned, you know, you know, spreads just get a bit. Yes. And so I think some of it will show up in spreads, if the market is rational as I expect it to be, and if capital remains somewhat constrained, and this isn't to say that the leveraged loan market will remain compromised forever, it will it will come back in some form and fashion, maybe not exactly as it was, but it will. Um, I expect it to show up more in the underlying documentation. 
And, and that's what I think the lesson, one of the lessons of the last cycle will be is, you know, again, we, we had a, a generation of investors whose primary objective was to deploy and they hadn't seen a cycle. They didn't experience any loss rates. We haven't seen the severities and the underlying documentation, particularly on loans, but also on high yield bonds, it just get, kept getting worse and worse and worse. And so that's what I think one of the big takeaways is going to be. And that's why I think you're seeing directly the recovery rates, which are very surprising. Um, and we think they're going to continue to be pretty challenged for some businesses. But I think that if if the market makes a change, I expect it to be on the integrity of the documents. Interesting. Well, uh, you know, John, we, we certainly appreciate your time. It's been a really, uh, uh, I'm sure for Phil as well, a really informative discussion for me today. But in keeping with the uh, pipeline of inevitability that goes with a podcast, uh, we do need to, to let our listeners, you know, go and enjoy whatever the rest of their day may look like. Uh, so on behalf of uh, Phil and myself, uh, thanks so much for joining us and uh, really appreciate it. Appreciate it, guys. Thanks. Great speaking. Thanks, John. All right, so let's let's bring it back inward a little bit, and uh, you know, return to some of the stuff that we're doing here at Bloomberg Intelligence. And I, I think maybe the best place to start, since it's back in the news these days, uh, you know, a lot of headlines recently about how the SEC is now considering a number of uh, Bitcoin ETF applications, whether we're talking BlackRock or Fidelity or Invesco, et cetera. So for the blockchain believers out there, it seems like uh, some good news, uh, but not all apple pie and cherries, I suppose, for that crypto space as, uh, you know, we still have some litigation out there outstanding. So Nagisa, I know uh, the SEC is involved in a few of these, uh, Celsius being one of them. So maybe you can uh, kick us off and uh, all the goings on in which there is many in terms of crypto uh, with the Celsius story. Sure, no. So uh, last week, uh, the SEC, alongside DOJ, CFTC, and uh, FTC filed lawsuits against Celsius, as well as his former CEO, Mashinsky, uh, centered largely in fraud. Um, Celsius actually announced the consensual, it's called it a consensual resolution of all of them within hours after the filing. Uh, I wanted to focus a little bit on the impact uh, of the settlement which is sort of yet to be seen uh, in the bankruptcy process, though the resolution was was pretty quick. Um, uh, in the agreements, uh, Celsius noted that it wasn't expecting to have it affect the Chapter 11 process, especially the Chapter 11 plan distributions. And that seems to largely be the case in some key respects. I mean, one clear example is the fact that there's um, a $4.72 billion judgment uh, entered in favor of the FTC, which was suspended uh, in favor of letting Celsius focus on paying customers instead. And so the resolution seems to be drafted with this goal in mind to protect customer recoveries, avoid burden in the bankruptcy estate. But its arrangement with the SEC particularly, I think, could lead to potential questions surrounding the treatments of claims related to its EARN program, uh, as well as CL token, um, largely because the SEC complaint makes certain allegations that haven't been advanced in bankruptcy court previously um, and certainly haven't been resolved within the bankruptcy system. Uh, so generally speaking, SEC 
alleges in the complaint very straightforwardly that the company sold both uh, the earned assets as well as its own crypto assets, CL, as securities. Uh, the resolutions of the settlement with Celsius, uh, that's still, by the way, awaiting district court approval, didn't contain direct admission that these uh, assets were securities, but promised to not deny SEC's allegations. Um, why does this matter? I mean, generally speaking, the bankruptcy court has never made a determination as to whether this, uh, either the earned assets or the CL token are securities. But if either is determined to be, um, they just from basic code provision, they would be subject to subordination under 510B of the code, um, which subordinates claims, quote unquote, arising from uh, the purchase or sale of securities uh, to those claims of general unsecured creditors. Uh, the reach of this provision is very broad. So to the extent you have creditors that argue that they have re- this rescission claims for these unlawful sales of securities, so even if the sales were unlawful, those claims would likely still fall under 510B. Uh, very little has been said in the bankruptcy process about the security status of the earned assets. Uh, I think in probably one of the most important bankruptcy court decisions in the crypto space that was issued at the beginning of this year, Judge Glenn in Celsius determined that uh, Celsius, the company and not customers, own the assets in the earned accounts. But that ruling specifically uh, didn't address whether the assets were securities. Um, the, with respect to CL, it's a bit more complicated. Uh, both Celsius and its creditors committee have continuously argued that that token is a security. Um, in uh, the proposed plan, in the proposed Chapter 11 plan, Celsius actually maintains the CL token is likely a security and has adjusted uh, proposed recoveries accordingly. But as again, as recently as this month, uh, Judge Glenn uh, has refused to rule on the matter, mentioning that this was a confirmation issue instead. Um, so it's it's the, the resolution was quick. The impact, the full impact, is yet to be seen. Though there's a lot of restraint as to uh, just being careful not to to affect uh, recoveries generally. Uh, but I guess we'll see more in August as to where that goes, where Celsius will have uh, a, a Plan disclosure hearing where, where this will sort of come more, will just become, will we'll get more out there, I guess. Is there a sense of whether Judge Glenn sort of maybe uh, avoiding these just because of the precedent setting nature of sort of, you know, determining anything in terms of whether it's the urn or the CL or whatever else? I think, uh, I think it it's probably right now. I think it's more than that. It's probably also, it's not necessarily within the purview of the bankruptcy court. It, 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 it could be an issue that the bankruptcy court doesn't necessarily need or want to have a say in. And it, it just hasn't been necessary. I mean, courts are very restrained as to how they roll, rule. If they don't have to rule on something, they'd rather, they'd rather not. I mean, they, they shouldn't. So that's sort of where we are. Maybe we need a Twitter poll is, is what we need to do then. That could help. <laughs> crypto no, crypto yeah. world loves Twitter polls. Yeah, well, you know, uh, I'm pretty sure there's a Bitmoji for that. But uh, let's maybe change gears, but still within the crypto space. And, you know, Gemini uh, also sort of out there, uh, things going on. I don't want to steal any of your thunder. So, Nagisa, maybe catch us up on uh, Gemini and and, uh, DCG. Yeah, so Gemini is definitely out there. At the beginning of July 7th, 
it filed a lawsuit against DCG and its CEO, Perry Silbert, uh, which I think probably faces uh, long odds in New York State Court. This was a new suit filed in New York State Court, not in bankruptcy court, uh, primarily because Genesis uh, will probably be able to take advantage of the automatic stay and generally resolve these issues within the bankruptcy system. So really briefly, the, sh- the suit is over customer funds of the EARN program. Um, it centers on fraud that surrounds Gemini loans to its customers' digital assets to Genesis. So uh, these issues, however, are already subject to Genesis bankruptcy, have been part of an ongoing mediation that admittedly everybody uh, admits that it went on longer than Genesis initially expected when it filed for bankruptcy. But uh, in May, Gemini has has asserted a claim in Genesis bankruptcy uh, exceeding $1.12 billion on behalf of its its lenders in in its earned program. Uh, And Gemini doesn't deny this, but it now says that this new suit that it brought in New York State Court is seeking to recover damages from DCG and Silbert specifically as they relate to their roles, their individual roles in Genesis' alleged fraud against Gemini. this uh, applying automatic stay to non-debtors is typically uh, we've seen in, in many certain areas it can be subject to intense litigation. Uh, the stay generally would apply to a non-debtor only in this extraordinary circumstances where there's this identity of interest between the debtor and the third-party defendant. But I think in this case that requirement is probably satisfied. Um, it's unlikely that Gemini would allow to pursue would be allowed to pursue d- damages against DCG and Silbert in state court. For for example, they even mentioned things like litigation expenses that they have occurred as a result of uh, the digital assets that they own to Genesis. Um, I think the fact that Genesis uh, bankruptcy proceeding has lasted longer than expected, that's not a good enough reason to pursue this lawsuit. Um, and there's also there's this issue of a 1.1 billion unsecured promissory notes uh, that Genesis, um, that uh, DCG uh, primarily awarded to offset Genesis 3AC losses. More specifically, Gemini seems to take issue with this tri-party agreement between Genesis, G- DCG, and Gemini, the, uh, pursuant to which Genesis, uh, DCG pledged uh, over $600 million to Genesis for additional collateral to cover these this damages. I think these are all issues that will primarily be, be resolved in Genesis uh, bankruptcy space and slash uh, probably a lot of these issues are our Genesis problems to solve also. So uh, that's still in the very beginning stages, but that's where we are. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a lot of names to keep track of, but it's not the only place where sort of Genesis is sort of uh, engaged. Uh, they got a little dispute going on with our friends at FTX as well, do they not? Me too. And it, it, this has been going on for a little bit. It's still very much unresolved. The dispute started over... Uh, to be around $3.9 billion. It's now, um, it's, it's pursuant then to a mo- FTX's motion to modify the automatic stay so they can commence avoidance actions against Genesis. That claim now, it's, uh, Gen- uh, FTX says it only won't exceed $2 billion. Um, so it's about half. 
Um, FDX also confirms now that these claims are entirely pre-petition general and security claims. Most importantly, they expect that the established reserve in Genesis bankruptcy will not be more than 30% of Genesis general unsecured claim pool, which is an important number as far as uh, Genesis' own plan and bankruptcy process goes. I, I think this is, we're still in discovery stage. We, I, I think that Genesis is unlikely to lose all control over when and how these claims get resolved. Um, that's because fixing the value of these claims with Genesis, by the way, says it's zero, uh, zero dollars, uh, is, is pretty crucial to, uh, Genesis reorganization. Um, I think, uh, the issue is that resolution is also central to FTX bankruptcy proceedings. Um, it does involve issues such as, um, this nature of what's an ordinary course transfer for FTX, what the value of FTX's native FTT token is, uh, which uh, admittedly uh, would be easier to be handled within the FTX bankruptcy court. Um, I think that the claim obviously could alter recoveries for both of these debtors, but uh, it's the delays that are particularly concerned to the bankruptcy court in Genesis, which is further ahead as far as the bankruptcy process goes compared to FTX. Um, I think uh, to give you an idea as to what time we're talking about here, I think in the latest correspondence, FTX argued that it could potentially set a trial date for all this in about six months time after the automatic stay uh, is halted. Um, I, the Genesis court doesn't believe that that's realistic. So it's it's we're still in discovery and still sort of trying to parse out which part of this claim would be better handled and where. Interesting. Well, you know, it's uh, never short for excitement there. But, Phil, I want to uh, bring you back to the conversation here. And, you know, a name that at least uh, on the high yield side, I've seen trading inside of 10 cents in the dollar for a little while, it feels like. Uh, but a little bit new to our coverage here. So Odyssey, uh, A-U-D-A-C-Y, Odyssey, not uh, like Odyssey, like Odysseus. Uh, what do you got? Uh, thank you for making that point because I've been confused by that a few times when people have called in on <laughs> it the name. It could feel like an odyssey. Yeah, like yeah, an odyssey, exactly. Odyssey, but, uh... um, yeah, so, so, you know, having looked at very closely the bankruptcies of iHeartMedia and Cumulus Media back in 2018, uh, I always thought it was interesting and curious that uh, the merger of CBS Radio and Entercom back then uh, they skated through that that round of bankruptcy. Um, maybe skated through is, is the wrong word. But um, what you have here is uh, Entercom had acquired CBS Radio. They did it as a merger. Um, the Fields family, um, uh, Joseph Fields was uh, the founder of Entercom, and David Fields leads it now. Um, they still have substantial voting power, I think over 30%. And uh, over, you know, high teens uh, economic interests as well in the equity. Um, it's uh, it did. It, unfortunately, um, the interest burden of that, because a lot of it was debt financed, um, that interest burden now, as we mentioned earlier, with the, the floating rate uh, structure, uh, it's been creeping up. The interest burden is about $135 million a year, and the last 12 months of EBITDA is uh, 
you know, an adjusted EBITDA is about 115 million. So you can see this yeah, is that's that's a that's a rough combo platter right there. So, but what's what's fundamentally wrong with this business? Oh, where 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 do we start? Radio is <laughs> radio is an interesting place. Um, you know, for and, and iHeart Media, you know, to be fair, iHeart Media and uh, Cumulus Media, their stocks haven't been performing either. It's 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 a tough space. Um, the radio advertising continues to just kind of shrink. And, uh, you know, it's you know, there is going to be some plateau. We've seen it before with other with other, you know, even newspapers can sort of plateau at a certain point as well. Although I don't know if that, that that's reached even that point. But um, it's when you have, uh, you know, these three uh, radio behemoths, they controlled so much of that audio ear, you know, the ear of America and. Now with podcasts and, you know, you have content provided, look at us, we, you know, you can create audio content quite easily and you can. Well, we're an exceptional example, though. Right? <laughs> I mean, very few bring to bear what we're able to bring to bear. But but yeah, so I, the point is taken. That's right. You know, we're not just <laughs> we're not just any three Joes with the microphones in front of them. Um, but uh, what what you have here is. Uh, this audio content is, is it's just it's just hard to have this digital media ad revenue make up for what you lost from being a consolidated space and so you know so, so as we think about odyssey um you know in 2018 it it had a lot of debt it the synergies were expense expensive um and they didn't come in as productive as they were people were hoping, you know, the, the, the any restructuring actions um, that didn't really go into a higher EBITDA. Um, then you had COVID hurt and a large part of CBS radio is live sports. So that hurt significantly. And then um, but you you had banks as much of the, many of them did with other credits. Uh, they were very forgiving. Um, they allowed them, you know, significant room off of the amendments during the pandemic, uh, you know, including up to 30 percent addbacks on their, uh, you know, uh, for restructuring expenses and, you know, synergy expenses, uh, synergy savings. Um, and then they copy pasted the pre-pandemic EBITDA into their 2020 numbers, um, you know. <laughs> And, that, and that, as uh, as creative uh, financial stuff as uh, want to do, right? Yeah, and it, it goes back to a common theme that we talk about is that the le syndicated leverage loan market, the lenders there don't really want to own these companies. They really yeah. don't. If you can keep paying them, they'll give you the covenant relief that that they uh, that the company wants. Um, and, and and so. You know, this company made $341 million of EBITDA in 2019. It's, we're, we said we're down to $115 million. Um, the secondly notes, as you pointed out initially, there's a billion of them trading below $0.05 cents on the dollar. And they just recently got a March coupon, which is pretty impressive, considering that's where they were. Um, <laughs> and ROI so, if you sourced them at... Uh, yeah, yeah. And, I, and I think that kind of points towards... Uh, the family, the Fields family, you know, being in the board here and, you know, having a strong voice, uh, it's 
equity knows that they've got to try and keep this thing alive and, you know, are probably, you know, I imagine they've been looking for strategic solutions for quite a while uh, behind the scenes. Um, but there's $1.9 billion of debt here. Um, and so you have first lien leverage off of that 900 about seven times. Um, and the at the end of the first Q10K they filed, there was a going concern assumption. Now there's recently been a Wall Street Journal story um, about how the creditors are organizing. So it's unlikely that September coupon gets made. Um, and, uh, you know, that's 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 one to probably be coming our way uh, in, in in bankruptcy court. Well, I guess we'll have to keep our ears tuned. But, uh, you know, the good thing about radio is you get a lot of music. And when you get a lot of music, it always makes you want to do a little dancing, kind of like the Texas two-step, which takes us to back to Nagisa in Georgia Pacific. Sure. So there is actually some exciting new development in, in that space. It's sort of in this world of bankruptcy, intersectional bankruptcy and mass torts in Georgia two-step in the Fourth Circuit that may affect J&J and 3M that we've been covering so extensively. Though asterisk on their 3M is not actually a Texas to step, though it looks very similar to one. Uh, so Georgia Pacific is uh, is trying to resolve asbestos through the Chapter 11 case of its unit, best wall unit. It won at the Fourth Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals in June. Uh, the ruling won't actually affect the dismissal proceedings in either Johnson & Johnson's LTL or 3M's Aero Technologies. But the win, if it actually sticks, and a little bit more on that later, um, may increase the likelihood that the U.S. Supreme Court actually could review part of 3M's bankruptcy strategy. That's because if the Seventh Circuit issues a ruling in 3M on the extension of the automa- of ERA's automatic stage of 3M, we expect it to conflict with the fourth with this Fourth Circuit decision that just came out in Basswall. Um, creating potentially the circuit split and increasing the chances for Supreme Court review. Uh, Georgia Pacific followed uh, the Texas two-step maneuver, uh, as we mentioned. Um, it uh, it ended up falling, uh, filing the best full unit for bankruptcy, and the Fourth Circuit said that um, the bankruptcy court had jurisdiction to issue a preliminary injunction pausing his Belsa suit against its parent, Georgia Pacific, which is a non-debtor. Uh, if it ever comes to be, which I think it probably will, we suspect that the Seventh Circuit would reach the opposite conclusion if it decides a very similar question in the bankruptcy of, uh, of ERA with respect to extending the automatic state of 3M. Um, one last thing that I think I'd say about this case, which was quite interesting, that in a very rare instance, the Fourth Circuit actually was critical of claimants' representatives' um, challenges to the bankruptcy process. Uh, Best Wall is a case, one of this first, if not the first, I'm not sure, Texas two-step cases uh, that tries to take advantage of the bankruptcy process to resolve mass torts, comes up often in both um Aero and LTL, mostly as a bad example because it's been in bankruptcy for four years now, um, and and claimants, victims, claimants uh, use it as an example of how ineffective bankruptcy can be. Though there's all these claims that it's so effective, um, 
and so inefficient this whole process is. But it's in the opinion, in, in the opinion, the Fourth Circuit actually put most of the blame on this four-year process on the opponents of the bankruptcy uh, process uh, for prolonging the resolution of these claims. Uh, and in fact, it went so far as to almost criticize claimants' representatives for preventing their clients from potentially obtaining prompt relief by sort of putting forward these challenges. Um, they uh, actually noted concerns that the reason behind all this pushback against the Texas two-step could be the potential for greater claimants' counsel fees that could be awarded in the state court proceedings. So it's not something that we've, um, we certainly have not heard um, the Third Circuit or uh, the Bankruptcy Court or the Seventh Circuit say any of that. I mean, they went the opposite direction. So it's it's been it was interesting to see a very differing, a very uh, different opinion from the Fourth Circuit. Uh, one last thing on this: this was a two-to-one opinion. So in a three-judge panel, this is as close as it gets. Uh, there is now a petition for a rehearing of this case from the entire Fourth Circuit. Um, there's a request uh, from the Fourth Circuit to get the views of the others. It is a very technical sort of procedural aspect to this. Uh, but short answer, there is potential for uh, the circuit to hear this. There is a potential for the circuit to overturn itself in a way. Uh, we'll probably know more about this uh, in August or September as to um, what the end result of this hearing may be. And now you alluded to the impact here in terms of, uh, obviously, you mentioned uh, 3M a couple of times, but also J&J in there. Uh, anything specific on the J&J piece? So not, this doesn't really specific. I mean, these are all very similar cases, but the arguments have been made their way to the courts. Have been They don't sound different, but they're actually quite different. Uh, this is this was not a dismissal case, so it doesn't relate directly to J and J. But J and J is so in J and J, there was a dismissal trial that ended June 30th. So we are awaiting a ruling on that, a very important, pivotal ruling. We I, I think we probably will get it by August 2nd, uh, unless the court decides to push some of the hearings that are scheduled for that date for later. Uh, for sure, any ruling, whichever way the court rules, will be appealed. Uh, the inquiry again at the center the second time around in J&J is, is there bad faith? Was there financial distress when LTL filed for the second time? Did the circumstances really change? What's this manufactured financial distress? Is it, is it permissible? Um, one interesting thought in J&J is this possibility, however small, that the case may survive dismissal even if the bankruptcy court ends up, ends up finding that the second bankruptcy was actually filed in bad faith because of lack of financial distress. And this is a bizarre thought, but there's this obscure, rarely used, if ever, provision of the bankruptcy code that says that a court may decline to dismiss the case if the debtor can show unusual circumstances uh, that justify somehow keeping it in Chapter 11. The debtor must also establish that there's a reasonable likelihood to, that the plan will get confirmed or that it's, and that this con conduct was justifiable and that it can be cured. Uh, it's very hard to make out what any of this means, uh, largely because there's very little law on this, but this was something that uh, the Bankruptcy Court in New Jersey specifically asked the parties to brief and specifically, um, 
as the parties to address. So it's it'd be interesting to see where it where if anywhere the court goes with that. Um, so uh, we'll we'll probably know within uh, a few weeks. All right, let's let's bring you back in here, Phil, because uh, you know uh, maybe almost uh, related to sort of the tale of Odyssey, but a little bit more mature in terms of the courts are concerned, or if at all, is, is our friends at Diamond Sports. Uh, we've been sort of going through uh, running the bases on that one, I guess I should say. You know, where are we now? Second base, third base, sprinting towards home. Oh, we're still on first base. Oh my goodness! This, 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 this one is this is this is this is a tough, tough uh, bankruptcy, and it's a tough reorganization. Um, you know what caught my eye with Diamond Sports this past month uh, is uh, is is really their first lien loan. It went from the '90s when the company filed to the '70s, and uh, keep in line. Keep keep in mind that um, the restructuring support agreement that they put together, they cobbled together shortly before it filed. Um, it 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 contemplated leaving the first lien claims unimpaired, and not only that, but it talked about how that those claims would include any premiums, and the makehole premium here because this loan was put in when things were already a little shaky is about 30 points. So, you know, you're talking about a loan trading in the 70s that has a potential upside of 130, according to an RSA that is supported by the second lien lenders. So you'd think, okay, if there's a going concern here, this is pretty good. And it, it's that assumption that's now being questioned by, you know, where where it's trading. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I I think one of the things I'm looking at is like, all right, what can we, where, from what's public, what what can we like learn about maybe what's going on behind the scenes that would cause the, these loans to trade off? And you know, you can see it. First off, the company has been shrinking. Um, you know, it it let go of its San Diego Padres deal that was earlier in the year. It, it let go of some college sports deals um, and it filed recently a motion to reject its Arizona Diamondbacks contract. Now, that one, uh, you know, their own valuation expert uh, pegged it at about he thought a fair value for that would be about forty five million dollars a year. And they're paying around sixty million dollars per year. So that that difference, you'd think that they could find some kind some kind of settlement. Uh, none has been struck yet, although there's you know they adjourned uh, they adjourned the hearing to hear that motion, um, and, you know based on productive conversations in their in their words. Um, but we'll see. But the bottom line here is uh, Diamond Sports is seeking to shrink back some of these rights and. What's concerning is they're they're shrinking back on their baseball rights, which tend to have significant strategic value. Um, and, you know, I mean, no. How many times have we seen shrinking as a reorganization strategy from retailers? It doesn't it doesn't <laughs> yeah. work out very well. It's good for about uh, 12 to 24 months. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I will say that the College World Series this year was pretty exciting. I don't know that you're a baseball fan in that way, but uh, it was a great series this year. That's uh, great. All right. Let's uh, 
let's maybe uh, pivot to uh, last word. We'll go to, to you, Nagisa. Uh, Silicon Valley Bank, uh, what's the, the latest and greatest of the, the now long forgotten instigator of the banking crisis that is no more? Yeah, so this is, uh, we're going to have a lot more on this in the coming months because uh, SAP Financial Group appears to be aiming for an end-of-year bankruptcy exit, and they seem pretty insistent on that. As expected, the $2 billion dispute with FDIC will be its primary focus. There were complaints filed on that recently. Uh, but just for today's purposes, uh, I just want to mention sort of a few developments from last month. In, in June, it received approval of this for the sale of its investment banking unit to certain members of its management team that were backed by the Bow, Bow Post Group also. Um, but in a move that probably illustrates um, just how early we are in this process still, uh, in dealing with this, with these key issues, the bankruptcy court, so Judge Martin Glenn, uh, Suas Ponte asked for changes in the order to ensure that executives of the units wouldn't actually be released from liability related to the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, that's not to say that there is any liability or that there will be, but I think it's an example of uh, a court exercising a lot of caution ahead of what's to come. Um, the releases are still technically granted, uh, but the new language now specifies that uh, any releases granted to purchasers uh, would be voided if there are actions uh, initiated uh, against them on account of claims that don't relate to the investment making unit. There's a bit of acrobatics there, so to speak, but so not a major development in and of itself, but it's not often that judges will seek changes to fully consensual orders like this, especially um, uh, where uh, everyone is lawyered up. So there's, there's not a lot of need for courts to interfere. Uh, but I think it illustrates how carefully the court is being and uh, will be moving forward in the coming months. I guess. It seems especially around releases these days, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I mean, it's a, it's definitely a political hot potato, right? So at any rate, with that, uh, I guess that brings us to the conclusion of yet another fantastic episode of Odyssey Destroying Podcast from here at the State of Distress Debt. Uh, as always, I'm Noel Hebert. Uh, and on behalf of myself, Phil Nagisa, and of course, our special guest, John Pavelski, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, and we look forward to having you again next month. 